this is Robert Mitchell with High Tide in the Dreamtime. I think this is the 50th episode. Um, I think I am winding down working on this podcast for a while because I have mostly been uh, writing a book. And I love doing this podcast. It's been really fun. But I'm trying to use that energy uh, to focus on writing which I can, I think my plan is to have all of these podcasts in a book and then have a narrative that ties it all together. Um, but I love doing this and I just haven't been doing this frequently. And this one is inspired by a friend of mine who said that um, I'd been telling them some stories that I should have my stories in a book. So this, this podcast is going to be different from other podcasts in that I am just going to tell some stories about my experiences with psychedelics and the value that they had for me and how they changed how I saw things and how I experienced life, which is really what their potential is. Um, You know, I think that a lot of psychedelics potential is in internal experience It's not in groups. It's not in being out in the world. It's not in being ambulatory or running psychedelics through the nervous system as it's usually used, which really just kind of distorts the nervous system. But in my own experience, I have found that having done that in my younger years, because I had been, uh, because I didn't know any better, there were clues in it. You know, there was a calling in it. There was uh, information in it that I probably wouldn't have gotten anyway. So I just thought I'd run through some of those experiences um, because people may come across this podcast and find this helpful. And I think the stories can be entertaining too without being too kind of narcissistic or too um, self-referential in the stories. Okay, so people often ask me how I got involved with this, with the work I do or or my understanding of uh, psychedelics, which is in a lot of ways very academic. But in a lot of ways, uh, I was drawn to the academic um, and kind of psychological aspect of it by experiences that I had that made me realize that uh, reality wasn't as clear cut as it had been described to me, I guess. So I would say that um, the first time I took mushrooms, I was 18 and I was at college and I was in San Diego And people, I think somebody's brother had sent down a box of mushrooms from, of of course, from Northern California. And somebody had given me some and I don't know, I, 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 there was something about them that, that made me feel reverence when I saw them, when I saw that they had, um, what they looked like and, you know, the implications of them. And I didn't know a lot about them, but I remember I took a few by myself. Because I didn't want to be around people. Um, I didn't want it to be social or fun. I don't know why. It was just my instinct. It was my 
kind of, uh, I think, religious instinct. And I took them and I was overwhelmed by the sense that suddenly I had this awareness of parts of myself that were not historical, that had nothing to do with my family of origin, with the people I grew up around, with the culture that I was in, with uh, all the points of references that I've used, what my skills were, what I was good at, what I wasn't good at, that in fact, there were these parts of me that had always existed. And maybe up until that point, I'd forgotten about. And I can't talk about the ontology of that or, or where that comes from, but it was just sort of, yeah, I guess it was sort of religious in the sense that, oh, there, there are parts of my soul, I guess, that, that haven't been reflected in my experience, but they totally exist. And in a lot of ways, it was a preview of the things that I would come to learn over time in psychology and religious studies, but it was sort of really like a call. And I was so sure about it. Like it was so reassuring and so comforting and so easy to <clears throat> embrace that um, it really changed how I saw myself and how I saw the world that I lived in. And I was so enthusiastic about it. Like the next weekend, I had a friend and I, and I was like, you got to try this. This is incredible. He's a really bright guy. I think he's an architect now. Very sweet, kind person. So I think I, I procured some for him and his uh, girlfriend. And, you know, creative people, you know, and he was a creative person. They tend to really do well with the lateral thinking that psilocybin inspires and maybe even the lateral perspectives that it affords. And they tend to be intrigued by it. But his girlfriend, who had grown up in Orange County, she looked at me at a certain point and she said, it just can't be like this. It just can't. She kept shaking her head like, no, 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 no. And I was like, it is. And it's all right. <laughs> and that didn't seem to comfort her, but he had a great time and he was inspired by it. And you know, I think she was always a little wary of me after that. And that was okay. Um, but I had been introduced to something that I probably wouldn't have been introduced to any other way. And I was really imbued with the curiosity that the experience inspired. And I, I still feel that way. I still feel like there are things outside how we're getting culture and, you know, news and what information we're given about ourselves and about life. And there's a lot of ways to experience that, you know, but for me, it was a kind of opening. And I always think it's really funny because, you know, I then went off to uh, Syracuse uh, to go to college. And I remember being with my first girlfriend, the first, uh, the first person I'd ever really been in love with. And I was having this psychedelic experience. And Syracuse is great. It's really cold. It's a lot of snow there. But they have a lot of nature, a lot of trees, forests. 
all around the campus. And I remember very clearly kind of walking through a forest with her. And I think at the time I might've had headphones on because I think I might've been listening to the doors because I thought that was a very psychedelic thing to do. <laughs> Which now seems immature, but I, I, that's why I kind of let off with the doors in the podcast. Um, and she started laughing at me and, and like with delight. And I, I took off my headphones and I said, why are you laughing at me? And she said, take your headphones off and listen to the wind going through the trees. <laughs> and it was really funny because it was this kind of feminine wisdom. And I remember at the time what she looked like. She was blonde and very fair and very bright looking. And there sort of seemed to be streams of violet and pink in her hair because of, um, because of, uh, of the psychedelic. And she was kind of like laughing at me and laughing with me at the same time because she had this, it was sort of like feminine wisdom about what the real potential of the experience was and that it wasn't about superimposing ideas of what is profound or what is psychedelic and just really experiencing that your environment's talking to you like that all the time and it's beautiful and it will inspire a connection in you to the deeper realities and origins in life of life. And in her laughing, it was just so good humored. You know, it was so good humored. It wasn't judgmental. It was kind of kind and generous. And in that moment, I felt another opening. I felt another sort of bit of wisdom revealed to me. And, you know, I, I think at that point I was already, uh, I, I was, my major was religious studies and I was studying Native American religions and Eastern religions and, you know, the origins of religious thought in the West. And it just all kind of uh, came together in a, uh, in a tapestry. And psychedelics was definitely a part of it. You know, even though I was in a very, very academic, intellectually rigorous program, um, it was kind of woven into the experiences that I had with psychedelics. And I'd say that most of the psychedelic experiences I've had were probably between 18 and 25. In fact, I'd say maybe 90% of them were because, you know, I had the stamina for it and I didn't have a family and, you know, I was in environments where it was tolerable to do that and tolerated. Um, you know, academic environments. But, you know, when I was in graduate school, I was in an academic environment where most of the people who I'd been taught by who were now mostly into kind of a contemplative psychotherapy had gotten started with psychedelics. And so they were very sympathetic to it. And, you know, I was, after I was at Syracuse, I was in San Francisco going to a place called the California Institute of Integral Studies. And I was, I was literally living in the Haight-Ashbury in a pink and purple Victorian, uh, about a half block from Golden Gate Park. 
and about a quarter mile from where the Summer of Love, Love In happened in 1967. And there was a way, like that area, it was kind of a vortex. (laughs) I think back on it. Um, I used to run through that park and run through that meadow every day when I lived there. And my graduate school was actually on Ashbury Street. I think it was like 7... I'm trying to think what the address was. I think it was like 750 uh, Ashbury Street. It's not there anymore. The graduate school was in a Catholic, a former Catholic monastery in the Haight. And it was like five or six doors up from the house that the Grateful Dead had lived in when they were living in the Haight. So I was just awash in a kind of psychedelic history there. And the place that I went to graduate school had all of these psychedelic pioneers there. Um, it had a guy named Ralph Metzner who had been with Tim Leary and Ram Dass uh, at Harvard. You know, Tim Leary had become kind of a messianic narcissist about LSD. Ram Dass had become this spiritual teacher after he'd been Richard Alpert at um, Harvard. And then Ralph was this German intellectual who had, I think he wrote 17 or 18 books, and a lot of them were about psychedelics. And he was a very severe character, very intimidating, very smart. And um, Stan Groff was there, who has written probably 20 books about psychedelics and mapping the psychedelic experience. He was a, a Czech psychiatrist who in the 50s and 60s had been a had been doing LSD psychotherapy, I think in Prague, and he had worked with thousands of people using LSD really successfully before it had become recreationalized by the counterculture, which LSD had for a really long time before sort of the counterculture got a got a handle on it in the sixties, been used therapeutically. And incredibly successfully. In fact, a lot of um, a lot of what's going on now is really just working with the models of the '50s and '60s, which were incredibly successful. And LSD really became Ill- illegal as a uh, response, Nixon's response to the counterculture, and how it was fueling the counterculture, and that it was a way to uh, bring charges against. The counterculture, um, and 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 break it up. So, and then then there was this guy Michael Harner, who in the nineteen fifties was in the Amazon, doing uh, ayahuasca with Amazon natives and writing books about it. And uh, he wrote a book called The Way of the Shaman. I think he wrote a book called Psychedelics and Shamanism. I mean, these guys were really really old school psychedelic guys and their attitude was sort of like the war's over and we lost and it was kind of sad and and like that it was almost like psychedelics had been this thing that had risen up and been too powerful and then died and I don't think at the time they would have had any expectation that it would return this was the early 90s so anyway I was in San Francisco. I was in this very psychedelic, positive environment. 
and I was in a very, you know, I was in an archetypal psychedelic uh, situation in the hate. And I think that was when I probably had the most psilocybin experiences. And I'd say the most profound experience I had was on Mount Tam, Mount Tamalpais, which is this holy mountain in Marin. You can walk up it and it's the base of it is in Mill Valley. And when you get to the top of it, you can see all of the Bay Area. You can see San Francisco. You can see Angel Island. You can see Alcatraz. You can see the East Bay. It's incredible. It's one of the most incredible places to hike on Earth. There's hundreds of miles of trails on it. And one day, a friend of mine, I had this amazing friend. His name was Cameron. And he had been number one in his uh, medical program at Stanford. He'd been the number one student. He was going to graduate first in his medical class. And when he was doing his medical internship at Stanford Hospital, he was in a room one day with somebody who was dying. And there was a doctor in there. And there was a priest in there and he had a realization that actually he was a lot more like the priest than he was the doctor. So he dropped out about to graduate at the top of his class and went into the psychology program where I was uh, at the California Institute of Integral Studies. So he also was interested in psychedelics and we decided one day I'd gotten these, my roommate at the time had, you know, gotten these mushrooms. And one of the things I always find is if, if psychedelics are going to be a part of your life, they kind of find you like it's a synchronicity. And I find that when people work with me, it's a synchronicity, like they're kind of ready. They're ready for what they're going to realize by having these experiences. Um, anyway, so Cameron and I, and these, I remember these, these particular mushrooms, they were huge. They were huge. They were huge and phallic. That's what I recall about them. They were the biggest mushrooms I'd ever seen. And he and I went up onto Mount Tam and parked and we, we ate each way one of these mushrooms. It was like, it was vein blue with psilocybin and it was really big. And um, we walked for a while and I felt myself, you know, coming on and he was too. And he said to me, he said, you know, I'm cold. I'm going to go back to the car and I'm going to get a sweater. And then I'm going to take the car or I'm going to, uh, at some point I'll, I'll find you at the, at the next trailhead and pick you up. And I was just like, okay, whatever, whatever you want to do. Um, and so when he was gone, I started to have this experience and the experience was that I identified with Krishna. That was just the, the thought it's like Krishna and these, these trails, this mountain was like an eternal Himalaya. And 
I am just eternally walking, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm eternally walking this trail on my own. And that's what I do. And it had occurred to me, I was actually quite convinced that Cameron leaving was the end of an imaginative tale that I had created, which was my life up to the point when he left. And that included my family of origin, my childhood, my friends that I had known, the places I'd gone to school, the colleges, the graduate school, and him leaving was this kind of cessation of a dream. And that I, at certain times, dreamed lifetimes because I became lonely on this eternal Himalaya that I walked. And when I got tired of being alone, I imagined lifetimes with great detail and great narrative. And that I have that capacity. And, you know, this is straight Hinduism. And I think the thing about um, psychedelics that are amazing is when you, <clears throat> when you have profound experiences, you come right up against the origin of religions, whether it's Christianity or Buddhism or uh, Jainism or uh, Hinduism or Native American religions. You know, they all come from a shared origination. Anyway, so... I had basically accepted that everything up to the point of Cameron leaving from my birth had been a dream that had originated from me. And I saw the creativity of it, and I saw the profundity of it, and I saw the purpose of it. But I then accepted that I was back on this trail on my own. And I would be until I imagined some other life full of loves and loss and passions and disappointments and lessons. And it was profound and it was kind of lonely at the same time. And I walked for what seemed like, you know, I don't know, a hundred thousand years by myself. I didn't see anybody. I saw San Francisco off in the distance and I thought that was a great sort of archetypal reality that I had been in and I could see, you know, the bay and I thought that was magnificent but I, I I knew I was always sort of above that and part of it and that was part of me as well and it started to get dark the day had gone on long five or six I don't know what the you know it started to get dark and I thought well what I'll do I, I found a creek I was like you know I have a warm coat I had a fleece coat and I was gonna I put on my fleece coat and I'm like I'm gonna lie down here and I'm gonna sleep for the night and then tomorrow, I'll get up and I'll just keep walking, which is what I always do. I always walk. Um, and that's okay. And as I was settling in, Cameron came walking up. And he had a coat on. And I was just like, oh, I get it. Cameron, I don't want to be alone. So I am again imagining this being called Cameron. 
And I was so happy to see him. And I, I really felt like I'd imagined him in this magnificent um, way because he was tall and he was handsome and he had bright green eyes and brown hair and he was kind. And I, I saw him and I really thought like, you know what, I'm just going to embrace this because I do this. And I saw him and I went up to him and I gave him this big hug and I'm like, Cameron, it's so great to see you. And he's like, hey, yeah, it's great to see you too. You know, I sat in the car for a while and I came down and then once I was down, I drove here. I'm like, yeah, of course you did. And I, I was really like, it was like being in a play, except Cameron didn't realize it was a play and I realized it was a play. And so I was just noticing all these things about him that I'd liked and, and how great he was and how creative it was to create such a, a wonderful man, handsome man and good friend and the whole thing. And he goes, yeah, yeah. He goes, he goes uh, you want to go back to the city? Because at the time I was, I was living in the city and I'm like, yeah, yeah, that's a great idea, Cameron. And I was like, yeah, I guess I didn't really want to lie down by that river anymore and I'm going to go back into this imaginative reality where I live in San Francisco and have friends and go to graduate school and it's all work. Um, and then, so we got in the car and it was about, I think it was like 1992 or 1993. And when we got in the car, he had the soundtrack from the Doors movie on. And I was like, Oh, wow, this is so unimaginative on my part. All of the amazing music that has existed that I created, Mozart and Beethoven, Wagner, all these things that I could have put on the radio and I put on the Doors movie soundtrack, which is, come on, that's so just almost contemporary and it's just pop music. What am I doing? What am I doing? Why aren't I, why aren't I doing something more eternal and fantastic? Anyway, so he goes, um, and but I'm I'm humoring him, and and then what I'm also thinking is, I really don't know my way out of the back roads of Marin. So what's going to end up happening is eternally I'm going to be in this car, and we're going to be driving through the back roads of Marin. And I said that's you know that's much the much just like walking on this eternal Himalaya. It's the same thing. Um, but, uh, you know, I don't, I don't know my way out, so we'll be here forever. And then something happened. And what happened was a Velvet Underground song came on the Doors soundtrack. And it really was unfamiliar to me. And I think it had been in the movie. I think it was heroin. And that's what the song was called. And I was like, wow, I really don't know this song. This isn't coming from me. And for the first time in maybe eight hours, I entertained the possibility that there was a objective reality that existed that had nothing to do with me, that I was just an observer of and not the creator of. <laughs> and it kind of blew my mind because this song that I didn't know was playing, um, and so, so then I started to entertain the possibility that there was this reality that was an objective fact that didn't emanate from me. And then this other amazing thing happened was Cameron drove on to the, uh, he drove on to the on-ramp for the 101 going back to San Francisco and we were on the freeway. 
And I, then I was like, oh, wow, I don't know how to do this. But Cameron knows how to do this. And I then began to entertain the possibility that he existed separate from my creation of him. And I began to appreciate him that way. And then, you know, about 30 minutes later, I found myself in my, back in my apartment. And it was like this reality came back to me that, yeah, it all does exist separately from me. It all is something that exists outside of me. And I was sort of back in the reality that I'd started the day in. However, I actually think that most, both things were true. I think that there was this non-dual emanation that I was experiencing, that I was the intelligence or my root was the intelligence that created all of this and had created my life. And I know that sounds pretty far out, but that is just basic Hindu philosophy, which I, at the time, was not that um, immersed in or that my, my understanding of it wasn't proficient. It was sort of a preview of things that I would come to understand later in life. You know, it was sort of like being shown something that was a reality that I later would come to understand conceptually. And with psilocybin, that has happened a lot, you know, where, where stuff like that has happened. And it took me years to understand what it actually meant. So while I was in San Francisco, um, my mom came to visit me. And this was after this experience. And, and, and you know, um, my mom sort of, she's a brilliant woman and really creative and has a huge capacity for conceptual understanding and can learn a language in a couple of weeks. Not anymore, but she could at the time, you know, had probably like a, you know, a genius IQ. And, you know, if you'd sent her to Japan at that point, in two weeks, she'd be speaking fluent Japanese. That's the kind of intelligence that she had. Um, anyway, I'm not going to talk about her too much, but she came to visit me in San Francisco. And, you know, uh, funnily enough, she was a character in the electric Kool-Aid acid test because she was in the writing program with Ken Kesey and she had been sort of portrayed in that story in the Ken Kesey psychedelic wife swapping world as like an East coast square who was judging everybody about and not really participating in the cultural transformation that was being born there in, in Palo Alto. Anyway, so she came and she looked at me one day. She, she said, let's go to lunch. And she visited. We went to lunch on Knob Hill somewhere, which is kind of like the reality she'd always been in. She sort of grew up on Fifth Avenue and this 11-room apartment um, on the Upper East Side and Bryn Mawr. And, you know, she just couldn't get outside of her cultural understanding of things. And uh, we went to Knob Hill and she kind of looked at me. My hair was long and I was wearing like ratty jeans. And I was probably caught up in a cultural collective, you know, like sort of like a grunge thing. Because, you know, Generation X and, you know, Nirvana and Pearl Jam and Soundgarden were happening. And, you know, you just got overtaken by that. Anyway, so my mom looks at me at a certain point and she goes, are you doing drugs? 
And I'm like, no, not really. And I really wasn't. I mean, I wasn't smoking pot. I wasn't doing any drugs. I was occasionally uh, having psilocybin experiences. She goes, none. And I'm like, well, you know, occasionally I've been doing psilocybin, been eating mushrooms. And she's like, oh, okay. And uh, she had this friend, old friend, named Jack Cornfield, who she had discovered in the early 70s. And Jack had uh, been in the Peace Corps. He'd, I think he joined the Peace Corps during the Vietnam War because he was a pacifist. And he'd been in Southeast Asia. I think it was in Thailand. And once he got out, he became a forest monk in Burma and Thailand, a Buddhist forest monk, studied with these great uh, Buddhist teachers, world-renowned, but you know they were like living in the forests of Southeast Asia. And then he came out a meditation teacher. Um, and he is the preeminent, uh, I'd say, Buddhist meditation teacher of the 20th and 21st century. He's sort of like the original. He's like the Bob Dylan of meditation teachers. Uh, and he founded a couple, he founded a place in Barrie called the Insight Meditation Society where I'd taken a meditation retreat when I was in college. And then he had this place now in Marin called Spirit Rock, which was a big acreage in Fairfax. And he'd created a whole meditation center there. And um, it's still there. And, you know, it's, it's the only place of its kind, I think. And um, she goes, let's go see Jack. You know, and Jack had stayed in our house when I was a kid. Um, and my mom had gone and done retreats with him. And, you know, he I, I think at this point, and he's written like 20 books. And he actually spoke to my mom the other day. And he said, at this point in my life, I don't have any thoughts that are unpublished, which I thought was really funny. Anyway, so we went to see Jack. And I thought that was a good idea because I always thought he was cool. And, you know, he was the reason that I'd gone to this graduate school. He'd recommended it. And I think that he wrote my letter of recommendation. And I think the fact that I was 21 when I was applying to it, like him writing me a letter of recommendation really helped. Um, anyway, we went to see him and he was in this big hall and there were a couple hundred people who were there to see him speak about meditation. And I think that there were some visiting monks from Thailand or Burma and they spoke a bit and we went up to him afterwards and we said, you know, we just said hi. And, uh, he looked at me and I think the last time he'd seen me, I was mostly like a high school football and baseball player, super jockey, um, kind of alpha athlete. -y. And, you know, he saw my long hair and, <laughs> and realized that part of my life was over. And he just looks at me and he goes far out, Robert, great to see you. Wow. And then he sees my mom and he gives her a hug and tells her it's great to see her. And she just blurts out, Robert is doing mushrooms. And it was so funny because at the moment I realized how tactical that was, that here I was to be admonished in front of what was the closest thing to, uh, the closest thing to, uh, a family a religious figure because you know things had just been pretty bohemian at my house he was like he was like family clergy and i realized that the whole thing had been a setup to sort of get me in trouble with the family clergy and he heard what my mom said and he kind of like closed his eyes and thought for a moment and 
he opened his eyes and he smiled and he goes, oh, a good mushroom experience is probably the equivalent of a two-week meditation retreat. And um, it was so funny because I remember my mom just seemed so disappointed that that was his response. And I just sort of felt like, oh, yeah, like, that's okay. You know, like, he, he didn't care. And, you know, what I really came to understand afterwards was that every American Buddhist meditation teacher had originated their experience with consciousness um, exploration with psychedelics. And there really was no exception to that rule. Everybody had psychedelic experiences and then realized that you can't do psychedelics all the time, but you can meditate pretty much as much as you like or, you know, every day at least. And that that's going to incrementally move you in the direction that psychedelics had sort of shown you. And that's what I've always thought. I always thought psychedelics will give you a preview of the road ahead, but you still got to take that road by yourself day after day after day after day. And that's sort of what I've taught people since then, since I've been working with them, is that, yeah, psychedelics are going to give you a big picture. It's like a movie preview. But the movie is actually meditating and experiencing your environment through responding and not reacting. Anyway, so... um, I think that I, I think I think it was a really seminal moment when that happened, despite my mom's disappointment. It really kind of showed me that what I was doing was okay, and I wasn't abusing it, wasn't doing it too much, and um, my intention was correct. Anyway, so you know, there's always some, and one of the things I always found when I was in the Bay Area was. Um, which was sort of funny at the time was people always assumed that I was somehow uh, a fan of the Grateful Dead, which I was not and never really have been, but it was all around. And, you know, sometimes people would talk to me on the street, (laughs) on hate street, and they'd usually be kind of like homeless kids and they'd start talking to me about the Grateful Dead. And I didn't know what they were talking about really. Cause I'd seen the Grateful Dead when I was 19 in Irvine Meadows Amphitheater in Irvine. I had friends who get these really good seats. And I remember just being there and being like, oh, when does the part start that makes you want to follow these guys everywhere? But when I was living in San Francisco in the hate, I got this roommate and she was an art professor at the San Francisco Art Institute. And she used to make the floats for the Grateful Dead's New Year shows and their... Um, Mardi Gras shows and their Chinese New Year shows and she was like you gotta come with us and I was like I don't she's like no 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 you're a deadhead trust me and I'm like I'm not Um, she's like yeah you are you'll figure it out when you get there and I was sort of like okay she had really good seats because of her job with them always being like the fifth row at the Oakland Coliseum so I, I just was like went in Rome you know I'll go and, you know, I always had great seats and I always had, she always had really interesting people sitting with her. Like at the time, 
a guy named Howard Rheingold, who was the world's expert at the time in virtual reality. And he would make like a quarter million dollars in a weekend going to uh, Detroit and talking to the big, I don't know, how many is it? Is it the big four, the big five, the big three auto manufacturers and telling them how virtual reality was going to change their production models. And he would just go there for the weekend and, you know, he'd make that money and come back. And I don't even think that it ever really happened. Um, and he's a professor at Stanford now, but he was really funny and really creative. And I just remember this one point where he took a big, big pipe hit which I didn't do. I wasn't interested in that. And, and then he blew out this huge stream of smoke while the Grateful Dead was playing. And he turned to me and he goes, you know, for a second there, I understood everything. <laughs> which I thought was really funny. He was a really funny, creative guy. I think he'd been an editor on the Whole Earth catalog. Anyway, so... One time I got taken to a Grateful Dead show by somebody else and my seats were terrible because everyone always thought I'd be the most fun person to go to a Grateful Dead show with. And they were kind of magical in that everybody there was nice to everybody there. And they kind of assumed you were part of their tribe and they treated you that way. And it kind of magical things could happen when people were like that. And it was also kind of a cult. Um and one time I had this really bad seats and I, I took mushrooms and I just kind of closed my eyes and listened to this music. And I had this super profound internal experience. And it was the first time that I realized that you could have an internal experience that was profound and completely unaffected by your environment, by what's going on in your environment. And I really felt like, um, I really felt like, uh, I really felt like that was different from paying attention to what was going on outside you, that inside you was a whole universe. There was a whole matrix of consciousness that if you just closed your eyes, you would experience. And I also felt like that was a preview about things I would come to understand later because a few years later, I was uh, an ayahuasca ceremony, which I was curious about. And it was the first time I did it and I drank the ayahuasca and they have you close your eyes and listen to music. And as soon as I came on to the ayahuasca, which is DMT, which is DMT and psilocin, which is what psilocybin gets metabolized into, is the exact same molecule, except psilocin has an extra hydroxine leg on it that makes it be orally active, meaning you can eat mushrooms and you'll have a psychedelic experience. But if you eat things that have DMT in them, like oranges, lemons, peppers, cabbage, uh, your body breaks down the DMT before it, be, before it goes into your blood brain, through your blood brain bar barrier. And so, um, D ayahuasca is just mushrooms with vomiting. And the reason that people vomit in ayahuasca is because they add a second plant that is called that has an MAOI inhibitor in it, which kind of greases your stomach so that the DMT can get into your blood-brain barrier. But the brew has a really high acid content. And so the high, the high acidity causes people to vomit because they don't tolerate the acidity in their stomach. 
And for me, I probably did it five or six times and I never vomited once. And that probably has to do with the pH in my body. But I remember uh, I did it with, with, with kind of Westerners and then I did it with Shipibo shamans from Peru. And the, when I told the Shipibo shamans that I never vomited, they were like, oh, you'll vomit when you take, you know, La Perga, when you take my, my Chocolata, which you'll vomit, everybody vomits. And then I'd do it and I wouldn't vomit. Um, and it was just a biochemistry thing. But what I realized on the, at this first ayahuasca ceremony was that, one, um, the vomiting, which becomes part of the ritual, is really something that they've just included in the experience because people vomit and then they tell you that, you know, you're throwing up years of, you know, repressed memories and, and repressed emotions. And it just isn't true. I don't believe that at all. I just think that people vomit from ayahuasca and they had to account for it in the mythology. And then when I closed my eyes, I went to the exact same place that I was in at, uh, when I had bad seats at the Grateful Dead show. Like the same matrix, the same field, the same insights, the same reality. And I was like, oh my God, this is the exact same place as psilocybin with bad Grateful Dead seats and your eyes closed. And I realized it was the same thing. Now, I had a lot of insights that night. And I, one of the things I realized is that it's crazy to do these things with a bunch of strangers and the way I realized it was I, I had this experience. It was very profound. I saw this like Indra's net and how it started before my life and continued on after it. And it was interwoven in my very life. And I saw that some people like arose from Indra's net just to share things like Bob Dylan or Neil Young or Jim Morrison or, you know, like that. They just, they were the, they were the field, their personal presentation, their personal identity wasn't that important. You know, Einstein would be somebody like that. It's just the field revealing itself to itself. And we're all kind of like that in a way, to some degree, depending upon how powerfully the field makes itself known to us through our own experience. And I thought that was all super profound, like A plus experience. And then I was kind of coming down and I felt like it was Apollo 13, like I'd had this really profound experience. And I went outside because it was kind of, I was coming down and I was like meditating on a step. I was in Santa Barbara. I was in this kind of rundown hippie place in Santa Barbara. And it was, the ceremony was run by this couple. <laughs> and they were, they were, they were Westerners. Anyway, so I got outside and I might've been doing yoga or I might've been, I know I was meditating on the stoop and the woman who's running the, the ceremony, she comes out and she goes, Robert. I'm like, hey, how you doing? That was great. That was awesome. And she looks at me and she says, you need to do more medicine. And I said, oh, yeah, no, I don't. Because I just had this amazing experience and I'm kind of done with it. And I'm coming down and I got everything that I wanted. It was great. And she looks at me and she goes, Robert. And she stares in my eyes. You need to do more medicine. And I was like, oh, yeah, no, I actually don't. Um... I'm in charge of what I do. And if you want me to come inside, because me being outside the group is disruptive, I'll certainly come inside, but I'm not doing any more medicine. And uh, 
she kind of looks at me and, and, and kind of was surprised by my response, but I, I wasn't going to do more because she told me to, I didn't totally trust her or the environment. Anyway, so I go back inside and people drink more and all of a sudden this guy goes crazy in the group, he starts screaming at the top of his lungs. Fuck this. This is fucking bullshit. I'm sick of this bullshit. Like at the, t- like louder, like it was making my ears ring the way he was screaming and he got up and he ran out of the room. And when he went by me, he got his feet tangled with my feet and he kicked at me like I was the bounds to his freedom. Like he could never be free (laughs) as long as he was tangled up with me. And it really hurt. And I was like, wow, this is getting super crazy. But then it got crazier uh, and the way it got crazier was he went into another room with the two people who are running the ceremony. Both of them were in there and he was screaming at the top of his lungs. It had been an hour when I went and knocked on the door and I said, Hey, do you guys want me to, uh, do you guys want me to, uh, get him to stop? Cause I can, I'll just tell him to shut the fuck up. Like you guys should be telling him cause eventually the neighbors are going to call the police and we're all going to jail. And they kind of like looked at me and said, no, 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 we got this. This never happens. Anyway, so he just scram- screamed through the night. I was amazed the police didn't come. And I got up in the morning. It was supposed to be a two-day thing. People were going to stay and do it again the next night. I just packed up and left. And so they followed me. They got in touch with me. They were like afraid I was going to uh, put a bad review somewhere or something. Like there were such things. And they were super concerned that I didn't have a good time and that I paid for two nights and only used one night. And they kept begging me to come back, you know, and um, I guess they knew I knew people like that. And they were like afraid I was going to tell them they were lame, which they kind of were. And they just kept calling at other retreats and saying there was a spot for me. So I went and I, I went back. And when I sat to drink... They'd poured me twice what they'd poured me the first time, knowing that I wasn't going to do two. And I looked at them and I looked at what they poured me, remembering what they poured me the first time. And I drank half of it and I handed it back to them. And they went, no, 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 no. This has been picked for you, chosen intuitively. And I went, oh, okay. Well, um, okay. I was like, you know, I drove up here. I'll do it. And I just drank the other half. And then I had the one really, really difficult psychedelic experience I've ever had. I felt like I was in this frozen flash of lightning that was indifferent and cold and uncaring and had never cared about me. And it was super familiar to me. And it had been about 45 years since I'd been in it. And I was like, oh my God, this is terrifying. This is awful. I remember this. And if I had to endure this for more than tonight, I probably would kill myself. That's how I felt about it. Like it was terrible. And I think it was partly because I wasn't safe and partly because they gave me a lot of ayahuasca. And it was just cold and different, kind of clinical, kind of... Um, metallic, and like I said, a, a stalled flash of lightning. And it was, and I, it was really hard, really hard. And I kind of told them about it in the morning and they're like, oh, you should have taken more. Or I think I maybe told them during the night what was going on. They were like, take more. 
And I was like, you guys, really, go fuck yourselves. You're so unsafe. Um, and I sort of got up and I drove back to Los Angeles and I had a swim and I felt a lot better and it was all fine. And one of the things I've always done since I was about 20 is meditated. And my meditation practice is just breathing into, into restriction and letting my breath open restriction. That's what I teach people. And it sort of goes like a hundredth of a millimeter by a hundredth of a millimeter, but you can make progress. And your restriction is usually your ego structure. And bringing breath into it will open that up. And it'll often release the experiences or the traumas or the decisions that created that ego structure that makes you hold your body the way that you do. Which muscles you hold, which tendons you restrict, all that tends to be super de defensive. Anyway, so probably like three years later, I was meditating and I had this tightness in my scalp that I've, I was aware of for a really long time, this kind of like iron tight tightness in the sort of outer reaches of my scalp. And I was breathing into it. And then all of a sudden I breathe, I breathed through it. Like it kind of dissipated, like there was nothing beyond it. It was like an onion that I'd gone beyond the last layer of the onion in. And at the moment that I did it, this thought occurred to me. And the thought was neonatal nicotine addiction. And I got up from my meditation cushion and I Googled neonatal nicotine addiction. And what I read was that when children, and I'd never heard the term before in my life, other than at the moment it occurred to me when I sort of opened my scalp. Uh, and what it said was that when children's, uh, when, when infants' mothers have smoked during their pregnancy regularly, they are born addicted to nicotine. And it's equally as difficult, the withdrawal, as a baby that's been born to a mother addicted to heroin. And it's said that it, the only way to comfort the baby, because they're going to go into withdrawal almost immediately when they're, when they're separated from their mother, is to breastfeed and get nicotine through breast milk. And the two things I realized as I read that was, one, I knew my mom had smoked when uh, she was pregnant with me because people did at that time. And she'd kind of admitted it to me at some point. She almost confessed it to me. And also that I wasn't breastfed. And at that, and, they, and it also said that the, um, the, the symptomology of nicotine withdrawal in newborns was shivering and uh, muscle tightening and restriction. And I realized at that moment that what that ayahuasca experience was about was about being born, being hours, days old, and going through nicotine withdrawal, probably in a bassinet in a room full of other babies and not being held and not being comforted and not being breastfed and not getting nicotine so that 
my initial experience of being born was being thrown into nicotine addiction, withdrawal. And that that experience with the ayahuasca revealed that. And it was such a relief, both knowing that experience and what it was, and then having that night revealed a few, two or three years later, and it totally making sense. And me being sort of strengthened by realizing like that's what it was. And it, it was such a relief. And it was so profound in a way too, because a lot of things get revealed during psychedelic experiences, especially if they in, they're internal, when you're about to be able to tolerate them. And they can seem intolerable because at the moment you don't know what they mean. But their meaning can be revealed days, months, weeks, years later. And that's why I really believe there are no bad trips uh, because they all bear fruit. They all bear conscious understanding. I'm 100% sure of that. There is no, there are hard trips. And that was a really hard trip, but it really sort of made me realize that I had endured that and had been strengthened by it. Like, to have gone through that being two or three or four days old or a week old or 10 days old or, and to have survived it was really, really challenging. But that my life force was more powerful than that. And that's something I've always taken with me since that experience. Um, so this has been a really long podcast, but all these stories are now in one place. And there's one last story which is a good one. <laughs> uh, and it's about 5-MeO-DMT, which is the most powerful psychedelic known. I, I, I'd always say like, I think it's about like 100 times as powerful as psilocybin, LSD, or DMT. It's known as the crown jewel of psychedelics. And I'd heard about it in the psychedelic community for a few years. And it's even esoteric in the psychedelic community. I'd say it's like 5% of people who, who are involved with psychedelics have had this experience. And kind of, you could go your whole life and not have it, and I could have as well, but I was curious about it. And I had talked to a lot of people about it, and I'd read books about it, and I had met a few people who uh, did it, who provided it for people who are providers. And I met a few people who are providers who I didn't think were that intelligent. And I thought their real skill was that they knew where to get it. And I wasn't going to do it with them because they didn't inspire confidence in me that they understood the experience or that they were going to create a safe container. So 